Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. I am here today with Rita McGrath. She is, I'm lucky enough to have her as a friend, and she is also a professor, a longtime professor at Columbia Business School, and most recently has written the book, Seeing Around Corners, How to Spot Inflection Points in Business Before They Happen. And uh, I'm delighted to have Rita on the show with us. Rita, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. It's such a thrill to be here, Peter. Thank you. Rita, why did you decide to write this book? Why now? Why this book? Well, the previous book that I wrote really took on the question of what strategy is all about today. And I made the argument that we have to be prepared for a world of what I call transient advantage, which is when you have short-lived competitive advantages rather than the sustainable competitive advantage that gets featured in all the strategy textbooks, right? Um, and that was kind of a breakthrough, and it got a lot of attention, was very well received. But the question that was on people's minds was, well, how do you know? You know, how do you know when it's time to move to the next advantage? How do you know when the old one needs to be retired? What's what's your sense of timing? And so that question came up enough that I thought, you know, really, that should be the next book, which is how do you think about the life cycle of an inflection point as it goes um, through your business? That's that's great. Um, and I, and we'll, we will explore that more in this conversation. Um, I'm curious, let's ground ourselves in some some specifics around like what is an inflection point? Mm-hmm. So I define an inflection point as something that changes the constraints your business has typically operated on. So if you think of most businesses, right, they're, they're born at a specific point in history, and there are things that are possible and things that are not. And as you mature your business and you optimize it, what starts to happen is you build key performance indicators and key metrics that allow you to establish some predictability in your business. Now, what an inflection point does is it changes those assumptions. It makes the previously taken for granted way you do things less valid. Um, so a great example of that is take Dollar Shave Club versus Procter & Gamble's Gillette brand, right? Dollar Shave Club, literally two guys in a garage, basically using Amazon Web Services for their computer power, using YouTube and Facebook to get their marketing messages out, importing you know relatively inexpensive blades from Korea, sending them directly to men. Um, you know These are all things that would never have been possible before in the days when Gillette was such a dominant player because you had to own computers and you had to own factories and you had to distribute to retailers. And all what Dollar Shave Club is just went completely around that. Uh, took Gillette by surprise. And in the first five years that Dollar Shave Club and Harry's and some of these other upstarts existed, they took 16% of Gillette's market share away, forced them to go to a direct-to-consumer shaving model, and forced them to start cutting prices, which is unheard of. Yeah, it's it's so interesting because it's almost like every business needs to try to disrupt itself, meaning you know, every, every business, the, the question that an entrepreneur is asking is, how do I take cost out of this? How do I, you know, how do I bring this to a consumer, you know, just more, more easily, more cost effectively, et cetera. And, and that's, you know, you, you sort of blockbuster and Netflix is an example you use in the book also, which I really like. And it's, it's the, 
I think, one of the big challenges that we face, which is the willingness to disrupt or cannibalize your own very successful, profitable product in order to come up with something that's going to be less profitable for you, at least per unit, in order to um, avoid someone else coming in and doing it, but not knowing exactly when or how or whether it's worth it is like it's it's tough how do you how do you see what how do you how do you time the market well i think it's really hard and i think what the lessons of companies that have successfully done this teach us is you can't wake up on tuesday and decide okay wednesday i'm going to be a disruptive player you know this is something that accumulates over time so a poster child for this would be nike's uh, investment in the direct to consumer model so they started back in the 90s remember with nike airpods partnering with apple going digital but they didn't do that in their core business they did that kind of as a whole series of experimental options well here we are now 20 years later and just shy of a third of Nike's total business now is direct to consumer. And it feels, and this is one of the interesting things about inflection points, when you finally look at it and you go, oh my God, there it is. It feels as though it happened overnight. But Nike literally has been laying the groundwork for this for 20 years. So my argument is when you are in that mode of constantly looking for the next thing, you're able to make small investments that position you. I call them options, so options for the future. And they position you so that when the signals start to become strong enough, now you can move, but you don't have to move all at once. And it's not this huge wrenching, oh my God, you know, the earth is falling kind of thing. Now you can move and it's almost like a natural progression. And I think that's what you want to get to as a business. The ones that get in trouble are the ones that just stick to their old model. They don't want to change, this digital stuff, I don't understand that. I just, I want to run the business every day, right? And I think one of the big blind spots that a lot of leaders have is they're so busy every day. And you must have this in your coaching practice, right? People are so busy every day that to pick their nose up out of their email and look around and say, what are the weak signals? Where, where are the edges of my organization? What's going on out there? It seems like a distraction. It seems like a waste of time. Yeah, you know, I was just thinking that as you were talking, this drive towards efficiency, which is how most executives are evaluated and and valued and and rewarded, right, is completely counter to what you're saying is so necessary, which is actually like let your brain wander and look out the window and, you know, shop around, window shop in another store and see what they're doing in order to be able to make you know, smart decisions. And I remember Warren Buffett saying once, you know, I make like three important decisions a year, right? And, exactly. And like the rest of the time, I'm just like looking and reading and, and watching and having conversations. Yeah. And I, was at a, I was actually at a conference with him once, um, uh, the Microsoft CEO Summit. And, uh, and a lot of times he'll sit next to me and he's like, turn that thing off. What? And he, uh, and he showed me... <laughs> And he showed me his his uh, date book. You know, his, he's got a paper his paper date book. book. Yeah, he flips through it like with page after page after page, and it's all blank. <laughs> so the greatest investor, you know, in our time, doesn't fill up his calendar with meetings and schedules and appointments. He he blocks huge amounts of time for reading, for thinking, for looking at what's going on around him. And I think that's very interesting when you consider how most leaders of most organizations just are so preoccupied with with being busy. What advice do you have for some people? I mean, I know what the advice is, which is actually, you know, be a little more like Buffett and actually spend a little bit more time being thoughtful. What practical advice do you have for people as to how to get there? What, what have you seen in the research or of the people who've been successful at it? 
Sure. Well, there's two levels. So at a completely tactical level, like I'm not going to ask you to turn your life inside out, but think about how you might use an hour a week. You know, what could you use an hour a week to do more of, you know, more looking around, more meeting with people that you don't know, uh, that kind of thing. And what should you spend an hour a week doing less of? And I think a lot of times our uh, our agenda is kind of like that closet at home. You know, all this stuff just kind of creeps onto it. And, and we're not thoughtful about what we decide to allocate our time to. And I think that's a huge problem. So at a very tactical level, I think it's just trying to lasso that time challenge and say, you know, if I was to really take this seriously and reallocate just one hour a week, I, and that's human, you can do that, right? So at a tactical level, that's where I would start. In terms of what you do with that hour, um, I, in the first part of the book, I talk a lot about practices that help you to get out to the edges of your organization. So directly coming in contact with the phenomena, empowering small teams, uh, having conversations that are diverse. And I don't mean that in a politically correct way. I mean that in a you know, do, how often do you talk to somebody who's not part of your industry? You know, how often do you meet with people who have nothing to do with your professional life? So it's practices like that that I think can kind of trigger your imagination. And that's what we're really after. So, you know, if you're in a room with 15 carbon copies of yourself, you're really not going to get much new information. Right. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, I, I sort of think about getting out. It's like there's there's almost two stages of that thought development. You know, one is the inspiration or the noticing and then the other is the gestating or the contemplating and I mean I just I, I literally this morning my wife and I Eleanor and I were talking about where to go on vacation and we looked at a place we we're like okay maybe there but you know let's talk about it again a little later and part, partly I judged myself for saying like what's the matter with me like why can't I just make a decision but over that next hour while I was working out, I found myself thinking about it and thinking about other places and the decision became clear to me. Mm -hmm. And and I think we need both that one hour cordoned off to, you know, you talk about getting out of the building and to, to you know, work around those edges and have direct contact with the environment and, you know, get get externally focused as opposed to internally focused. And then I think we need some space in our lives to to toss, like to allow our brains to work through what it is we're seeing and noticing and draw some conclusions about it. Yeah, my, my um, colleague, Bill Duggan, has, uh, I, don't, I don't know if you know Bill, know Bill, but he has a great uh, phrase for this. He, he talks about strategic intuition and the flash of insight when disparate things come together. And you literally see, he calls it Napoleon's glance, you know, where you see all these different things coming together in your mind. And when I think of the great strategists, right, it's not that they're better spreadsheet wizards or that they're better at, at, you know, kind of kind of analytically looking at the world. They're just really better pattern recognizers and hypothesis creators, you know, and, and well, what if this happened? And, and they've got a very broad aperture for the unexpected. So um, one of my students once said to me, in an evaluation that turned out to be one of the most fun evaluations I ever had. The student said, Professor McGrath has this uncanny ability to connect one thing to another thing, even though they're completely unrelated to each other. <laughs> that makes for good writing, too. It does, too, right? <laughs> yeah. But I think if you can see the patterns. So here's one I'm looking at at the moment, which is 
we realize income inequality is a an issue of our time, um, but something that nobody's really talking about is all this money kind of concentrated at the top of the economic spectrum is money that's not being spent because you know once you've got two yachts already, like seriously, what what are you going to do with it? So it's looking for investment, and there are very few in a, in a low interest rate environments. There are very few places that make a lot of sense to invest. So where is it flowing to? It's flowing to venture capital and private equity and all this cash looking for returns. So we have like a hundred million dollar funding round for an e-cigarette company. I mean, please. So what you've got now is kind of back where we were in the 90s, all this crazy money flowing around looking for places. But I think it's one of the unanticipated consequences of income inequality, because if that same money were spread out a little more evenly, you'd have people consuming it. You'd have people spending it. You know, they'd spend it on education. They'd spend it on their kids. They'd spend it on dinner out. And, you know, you'd have then you'd have much more of the engine of growth that we've relied on historically to, to happen. And it seems so completely obvious to me. And yet I talk to people about it and like, oh, I never thought of connecting those things. You know, the fact that we don't have innovation investment, that we've got too much money chasing crazy deals that you know we've got entrepreneurs selling off their companies. The same Dollar Shave Club, you know, was acquired by Unilever for a billion dollars. <laughs> I mean, it's just wild what's going on. And you think that's often that's because people aren't really looking around and inventing as much. Like they're they're not living their lives in a particular way that give them ideas of where new market needs might be. Well, I think what I see in the large, and I work a lot with large organizations and right. CEOs, and they'll tell you our our investors, our CFO, those people don't have the appetite for investing in innovation um, because we want to, you know, we want stable, steady returns, and and we want to keep our returns at a certain level, and we don't have the, either the patience or the capacity to invest in innovation. And to me, that's the beginning of a death spiral because, as you've seen in the book, you know. You have to have the time to play. You have to be curious. Innovation requires a little slack. Um, it requires, you know, enough profits that you can you can feel comfortable reinvesting. And my my poster child for this would be Kraft Heinz at the moment. Um, I mean, 3G, the head, the PE fund that bought that company, basically runs it for you know total efficiency. And so. If you come to work every day and people are saying to you, well, you have to justify an airplane trip to go visit a customer and you have to justify, you know, a, a test or an experiment. Um, and if that's the pressure you're under every day, then making the investment in the brand, you know, that requires innovation is going to be really, really a challenge. So I think I think there's this need to recognize that if we don't collectively make investments in the long term and in innovation and in the things that aren't necessarily going to always work out the way you expect, um, if we don't do that, though, we're we're ultimately starving the future. Yeah. And, and I, you know, there's one other element to it I'm curious to get your perspective on, which is I think, I think there's something like if, if I'm willing to innovate, I'm willing to not know things. I'm willing to explore things. I'm willing to, you know, find ways in which I might be wrong about X and so right about Y. And I, I feel like that's atypical. And I feel like it's atypical because we have these sort of very protective egos that, you know, don't want to not know, don't want to not have an answer to something, don't want to sort of work on something that has a degree of risk and uncertainty. And if that's the case, I'm wondering, first of all, what you think about that, and, and also whether you see some solves for it, or you've seen some people who've been very successful at it, and you can kind of, we could glean some advice or some, some uh, uh, insights from it. 
Sure. So I think this need to be right is very deeply ingrained in the way a lot of people are educated and trained. You know, smart managers are right. Uh, good students have the right answer. You know, there's a lot of this that we get in our, in our inherited um, background. And so I, I do see it everywhere that people really, you know, you can't be, I, tell, I keep telling people, don't waste your breath arguing about a point because you can't know. We don't know the data don't exist yet. So run an experiment construct some hypotheses. So I think a couple of things can help. Um, one thing is to reframe the question. So instead of saying, I have the right answer, it's number 43, ask the question, is it worth spending $1,000 for us to learn if it's 43 or 82? You know, so what's, what's or even the, learn more about whether it might be 43 or 82, right? Because right, exactly. we may not have a definitive answer to that question, but we might be we might be able to get some more data on it. Exactly. And uh, my colleague, Hal Gregerson, who's at MIT, uh, has written a really good book about asking the right question, which I can, I can highly recommend to your listeners. Um, so his name is Hal Gregerson, and he's at MIT. Um, but I think so, so the first thing is what's worth it to us to learn. So you can, you can maybe not have the right answer, but you probably can understand what it's going to cost to do an experiment, what's, what it's going to cost to do some interviews. So you can take that really big unknown thing and sort of break it down into its constituent parts. So I think that's one approach. The second approach is to use what I call a discovery-driven mindset, which is saying, you know, this big, huge, unknowable thing, what is 3D printing going to mean for aircraft manufacturers? I don't know, you know. But I could, I could, I could sort of say, well, before that becomes an issue, here are the 50 things that have to happen first. Let's focus on the one that's most knowable and most learnable about and start there. And then we can chart ourselves a path, even if it's not a direct path, even if it's a bit of a wandering path, we can say, okay, based on what we learned last month, here's the next learning challenge for this month. Right. You know, this, this comes to this, this, this thought that I have that I always struggle with about like knowing what's going to happen, like predicting the future in a sense, or predicting you know, where the next inflection point is going to be, seeing around corners, right? Which is the, the you know, a big, it's, it's the focus of, of your writing right now. And, and I, it brought me to this, like, I was reading the book and, and I noticed there was a point where you talked about lagging indicators, current indicators, and leading indicators. And if you look at how to know something is a lagging indicator, right? Something that, and you could describe each of these, but a lagging indicator or current indicator, it's super quantifiable and you have very specific measures and you're like, here's how we know that this information is gonna inform you of the past but not necessarily the future. Here's how we know that the information is relevant to the, to the present. And for a leading indicator, which is what are the indicators that will inform us of a certain direction that we're gonna be moving in or need to move in, those are very sort of anecdotal and qualitative more than quantifiable, which I think is the challenge, right? It's like the challenge of seeing into the future and figuring out when, you know, how to make a bet, when to make a bet. And, and I think you've talked in this conversation already very clearly about saying, make some small bets, prepare yourself to be positioned to flip a switch when you need to in order to, um, you know, take advantage of a future that is now coming. And I'm wondering if you have other thoughts about, like, both, you know, an ability to predict the future and, and an ability to see inflection points and, you know, where, where magic has a role in this versus, you know, <laughs> versus data. Sure. Well, firstly, I should say that I believe you can anticipate the future. I don't think you can predict the future. I mean, you know, 
my friend uh, Rich Devaney talks about going away for three days and uh, on vacation, and he was completely isolated. And he came back, and uh, the Russian, um, the, the 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 USSR had completely broken up. And he said, you know, one of the most defining events uh, in the 20th century, you know, happened while I was away for three days, and nobody predicted that that was going to happen. And he said, if if that could be missed, um, you know, how can you miss other things? I remember, um, I think it was Queen Elizabeth who was throwing the challenge to my economic colleagues at the British universities about the Great Recession. She said, how come no economists saw this coming? Why did you not predict that? Um, so I think prediction is really, really hard. As Yogi Berra said, it's predicting anything is really hard, especially about the future. Um, <laughs> what, I do think, what I do think you can do, though, is you can have enough feelers out that you can begin to anticipate. And I think when we talk about missing big events in the future, um, it's a failure of imagination, right? It's not connecting the dots. It's not having a rich enough almost database in your head of things that could possibly be related and seeing where those could uh, take you. Uh, for example, one recent study I read that I thought was fascinating was that um, basically the conclusion was if you give women access to education and access to productive careers, but, but don't relieve them of any of the burdens of childbearing, you know, and rearing, rearing families, uh, that one of the predictable effects is your birth rates are going to absolutely plummet. And these these authors did this global study looking at uh, different kinds of societal arrangements for taking care of, of dependent people and, and connections with birth rates. And I thought that was just such an interesting conclusion because now you've got something you can work with, right? You can say, now we can start to measure, okay, do women have access to education? Do they have access, genuine access to careers? And are we still insisting that they carry the lion's burden of, of work? Well, if the answer to those three things is yes, one of the predictable outcomes is a much lower birth rate. And regard, you know, whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing, um, you know, that's something you can kind of anticipate. And so if you say, okay, if I want to, if I want to see what the consumer population of 20 years from now is going to look like, right? Um, that insight will give you some, you know, will they be in multiple children families or will they be in small families? Will they be, you know, with, with both parents working or with one? You know, you can kind of then follow along and you can start to build mental models, which can then form the basis for hypotheses. And once you've got a hypothesis, you've got something you can test. So I can't say to you, there's going to be, you know, 2.1 children born per American family in 19, you know, 2025 or something. Uh, but what I can say is directionally, this is where it's likely, likelier to land them not. So I think it's this idea of making a hypothesis based on what you can know something about. Yeah, you know, you write in your book, um, there's a quote, the techniques described here are not about making predictions and being right. They're about generating possibilities and opening your mind to what might happen so that as evidence gets stronger, you're ready to take action. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I mean, for example, right now, I think we're back in that 2006 moment. I mean, people are taking crazy risks right now, and there's just capital flowing everywhere. A lot of the old rules have been, um, you know, no, the, the, the breaks that were put on our economic system in the post-World War II era have been systematically taken away. And one thing we know is when the financial sector gets to be big enough part of the economy, you're much more vulnerable to crashes. So we're at that moment right now. Now, Tomorrow, next week, five years from now, I can't tell you timing. So but that's, the the, that's what's so interesting, right? Because I was just having a conversation with one of my financial advisors and also one of them. It makes me sound like I have a lot of financial. I don't. My <laughs> financial advisor. But I'm, I'm, for three years, I've been saying I got to get my money out of the market because everything's so overvalued. And, and he's Vanguard, right? And he's saying, you know, you can't time the market. And I'm looking at it now going, I, I, like, at some point, something's going to happen. And that's the challenge of predicting a future, which is like, 
what, you know, given everything you're saying, should I take my money out of the market? Well, I can't, I can't tell you timing. I mean, if you hadn't been in the market for the last three years, you'd be kicking yourself, right? That's the thing. So, you know, I, I, I mean, any investor will tell you that t- trying to time the market is, is uh, for, you know, for fools and people that have, I mean, I think the sensible thing to do is to have, you know, it's just like a business strategy, right? So here's my most preferred course of action. Here's my plan B. And if all things go to hell in a handbasket, here's, here's my, my resilience strategy, right? Right. Um, so I think, I think it's just like a company, right? If, uh, if X, Y, Z happens, you know, what's my plan B? How will I respond? You know, one of the takeaways I'm getting from this conversation is take everything less seriously. Like, (laughs) no, really, it's like, don't be so emphatic that you're right. Don't drive your product so hard that, you know, it has to be successful. Like mellow out, be a little more California than New York, mellow out a little bit. Like, look for opportunities, look for what else is happening out there, take some experiments, explore some stuff, don't bet the farm on anything, and, and like, just take everything a little less seriously so that you have opportunity to branch out and explore possibilities you wouldn't otherwise explore that if you didn't explore might really be the thing that kills you. Mm-hmm. I think that's a fair thing. And I, I, I mean, I think there are places where you really want to take things seriously. So some of my clients are large pharmaceutical companies. You know, I want them taking their day job like super, super seriously. Right. But when it comes to innovating around the customer experience, when it comes to things that aren't like life and death matters, then absolutely be more playful with it. You know, think about what it's like to be in that waiting room. Um, I remember once working for a drug company uh, that they had a treatment to treat very severe arthritis. Um, and they made it almost all the way to market, but their, uh, one of their last clinical trials failed and it failed. Um, we suspect because of basically a placebo effect that what happened was these older people would be taken to the doctor every two weeks and the doctor would, you know, feel their joints and see how the swelling had, had changed and whatnot. And in this particular trial, no drug, no drug did better than the placebo. And what we hypothesized later on was that the experience of having someone pick you up from your home, take you to a doctor's office, you could sit in the waiting room and swap symptoms with all the other older people that were there. So it got you out of being socially isolated. While you're there, the nurse is asking you about, you know, how are you sleeping and how's your diet? And, you know, it was it was your grandson's birthday. How lovely. You know, you've got this whole human social contact that's happening. And if you think about that, just as a, a small data point, um, and you think about where healthcare is going, right? Uh, you could formulate a hypothesis that said, "Hey, the the process of getting care, which is so fragmented and unpleasant today, you know, could be made a whole lot better." And who's going to figure that out, right? So now you can start to say, "Well, okay, if I'm if I'm going for a playful view of healthcare, um, maybe I should be investing now in better digital experiences, better waiting room experiences, you know, that kind of thing." So I, I think the playfulness part comes when you're really trying to think about what's new and and you want to expand your range of possibilities. Now, when you're delivering a critical core business function that's got to be copy exactly, absolutely right every single time, well, yeah, you need to be pretty serious about that. Yeah, I don't and want, I guess I don't that's... want my airline pilot suddenly deciding to experiment with a new flight path. I mean, no. <laughs> doing exactly what they're told. Right. I guess I guess knowing that distinction of what has to have no typos and <laughs> and what can be wanderings is really yeah. is really important. And and the flexibility, being a person cuz oftentimes we we're shaped as like I'm I'm a perfectionist or I'm a wanderer and like being the person who has the flexibility to be able to do both intentionally seems to be really important. 
I think it's I think it's critical. And I think, you know, a lot of people, the ones that are uncomfortable with ambiguity and not having the right answers and everything, it's not that they have to suddenly become that person, right? But they have to understand it enough to not get in the way, you know, and right. to not see it as something that's in opposition to the right way. I mean, I see an awful lot of innovations that die. Um, not because somebody meant to kill them, but because, uh, back to questions, they're asking the wrong questions, right? What's the ROI on this thing going to be next year? And then it gets into a budget line, and then somebody's looking for the first sales. And then, and the whole thing just, it's not even ready yet. And yet we're pushing it to be um, so predictable that, that we suck the life out of it. Um, I want to wrap up this conversation with the same way you wrap up your book, um, with just a brief conversation. You, you have the sort of key insights about what we need to do to make all this happen. And one of them, you really talk about the importance of women in leadership. And I'm wondering if you can give us just a minute on that. Sure. So one of the things we're learning about women's ways of leading is that that is much more the way leaders in general need to be thinking. So it's creating collaborative communities. It's allowing it's it's creating the context and then allowing empowered teams to go out and grab things. It's having um, non-threatening conversations. It's making sure you have diverse points of view in the room. And it's not that men can't do this. It's just women. Now, I can't tell you whether it's by programming or whether it's societal expectations, but women tend to lead in a more um, horizontal, connecting the dots kind of way, which I think frees up the organization to be able to operate more um, more like a network and less like a hierarchy. And I think that the, the, the research on women's leadership suggests that it, it seems to come more naturally to women leaders. Uh, men seem to struggle a little bit more with it. And I think that's, you know, it's partly also men are really expected to have the right answer, be very directive, you know, be forceful. But that's our sort of caricature of a, a male leader, uh, whereas women are expected to be more conversational and more horizontal and to let other people's voices be heard and so forth and so on. I do think one just... Um, numerical thing for your listeners to bear in mind is there's incredible just piles and piles of evidence that if you get a critical mass of women and that typically means three at least three in a room not one not two three uh in a decision-making situation that the quality of the decisions on especially on creative problem-solving tasks is much higher Rita, we've been talking with Rita McGrath. I'm so happy you've been on the podcast. Her book is Seeing Around Corners, How to Spot Inflection Points in Business Before They Happen. Rita, thank you so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much. Enjoy the rest of your summer. You too. Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today, and thanks to Claire Marshall for producing this episode. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.